Today we're starting with the book of Ephesians, and we're looking at life in Christ, Christ in life, which is the mission statement of Jacob's well, but it's also the flow of the book of Ephesians. The first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul explodes with joy telling us about the life that we have in Jesus Christ. But then the last three chapters, he goes in to tell us that there are certain obligations, there are things we need to do to bring Jesus Christ into all of our life. And he does this primarily through talking about the church. The church is a central theme in the book of Ephesians. Um, that's actually the reason why I chose this as a young church. I thought it would be very good for us to understand what the church is and who the church is and what the church is supposed to be like. Ephesians is an awesome and challenging book. A theologian, James Montgomery Boyce, says Ephesians presents the basic doctrines of Christianity comprehensively, clearly, practically, and winsomely. It is just basic Christianity. In some ways, the book of Ephesians doesn't present anything different that isn't in the rest of Scripture, but it's very concise and it's very wonderful. And so if you are checking out this Christianity thing, Ephesians is a great place to be. And so I'd encourage you to stick around and to listen and to study and to read. The author of this letter is Paul. Paul was a man who grew up as a Jew. And Paul hated Jesus with a passion. But on his way to go persecute Christians, on his way to go throw Christians in jail, Jesus appeared to Paul. And saved him miraculously. And so Paul was immediately converted. And he, what, he changed from being a man who persecuted Jesus to a man who proclaimed Jesus to everyone he could find. Paul became this amazing missionary. And so he went around from city to city to city telling people about Jesus. One of those cities was the city of Ephesus. The, letter, the city who this letter is written to. And his first passing through Ephesus was just a layover as he was going back home. But as he went in, he went into the synagogue and he started to tell them about Jesus from the Old Testament, how Jesus is the fulfillment of the scriptures. And the Jews said to Paul, will you please stay longer? And he says, I will return to you if God wills. And then Paul goes home. Well, God willed. And Paul comes back for several years proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. First, he goes into the synagogues, and for three months he debates with the scholars, telling them the good news of Christ. They drive him out of there. He goes down the street to this other school, and he preaches there for two years. Until, as it says, all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. And as a result of God's spirit working and Paul going to preach, there's this great revival in Ephesus. Many people are trusting in Jesus Christ, and certain idols are losing their power. There were some silversmiths that created these shrines for people that they would sell, and this is how they made a living. There was this temple of Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the world, where people from all around the region would come to worship Artemis. And to visit the temple prostitutes. And as people are being converted to Christ, those things are being depleted financially. And so they start this 
this rally and they start yelling against Paul and they drive him out of Ephesus. And so Paul continues on with his missionary journey after being in Ephesus for three years and planting a church there. About five or six years later, Paul goes to Rome and he's put in jail. And while he's in jail, he writes this letter to the Ephesians. And he writes it to them to encourage them. He's writing this to believers, to the saints in Christ Jesus, that they might know the joyous glories of God, that although this world has many frustrations, many difficulties, many persecutions, that the riches that we have in Christ far surpass anything we can face on this earth. And so if you would join with me, we're going to read Ephesians chapter 1. Verses 1 through 14. Ephesians 1, 1 through 14. It's on page 976 of the Red Bible. (coughs) Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus. Jesus Christ. And then here's something amazing. Let me just tell this to you. Verses 3 through 14 are all one sentence in Greek. Paul explodes into joy. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us and the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Let's pray. God, we do indeed thank you that you have blessed us so richly, Lord that you have done amazing things for us, that we have great treasures in Jesus Christ. Lord, as we walk through today's scripture, there are things that are difficult to understand. I pray that you would grant us humility, grant us understanding. But above all, I pray that we would leave joyously, glorifying you just as Paul does in this text. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. 
I have a trivia question for you. According to Forbes 2010, do any of you know who the richest man in the world is? What's that? Someone said Bill Gates, I think. Bill Gates is number two. What do you think, Preston? Not a Japanese guy. No? It's a decent guess. What's that? The founder of Facebook? No? Who said that? Oh, man. It's a brain. There's a guy in a developing country in Mexico. His name is Carlos Slim Helu and his family. They developed a telecommunication company in Mexico, and his net worth is $53.5 billion. $53.5 billion. It's a lot of money. $53.5 billion. Carlos Slim's uh, net worth is equivalent to 7% of Mexico's gross domestic product. Okay, And so for Bill Gates to equal that same achievement in America, Bill Gates would have to have 17 times more money that he, than he currently has right now. That's how rich Carlos is in Mexico. One of the funny things in reading about him is that I found out that Carlos is, they said, famously frugal. He has lived in the same house for 30 years, a six-bedroom house, and his, his room that he sleeps in, they say, is as cramped as a Manhattan hotel. And something else that's just amazing is that he actually drives himself to work, which is scary in Mexico if you're rich because people will kidnap you, try, try to take you for money. But Carlos is filthy rich. Paul starts this letter in Ephesians exploding with thanksgiving because of the riches that God has given to all who trust in Jesus Christ. If you look in verse 3, it says this, The Father has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every spiritual blessing. If you are in Christ, if you trust in Jesus Christ, you don't just have some of the blessings in Christ. You have all of them, completely it's kind of like a new computer, right? You get a new computer, and you don't know how to use everything, but you still got everything that comes with it. That's the way it is. God gives you every spiritual blessing in Christ. Verse 8 and 9 says, In Christ we have the riches of his grace, which he has lavished upon us. Literally, he has overflowing abundance put onto us. The riches of Christ Jesus. He has flooded us with riches. Verse 11 goes on and he says it again. In Christ we have obtained an inheritance. In verse 14, the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance. And so those who are in Christ are filthy rich, whether they want to acknowledge it or not. They are filthy rich with the spiritual blessings, the heavenly riches in Christ Jesus. And so you see, our riches are greater even than Carlos's riches because his might run out. I can't imagine it running out anytime soon, but his 53 whatever billion dollars, it has a limit. The riches that Christ gives to us is unending. Not only that, when Carlos dies, he can take none of that money with us. But these riches that we have in Christ just get better. 
when we pass from this life to the next. And so we are filthy rich in Jesus Christ. And Paul is telling this to the Ephesians in this glorious praise of God to remind them that in the difficulty of life, when it looks like everyone else has it better than they do, that if they are in Christ, they are extremely richly blessed by a loving heavenly Father. And so the question is, how do we obtain these riches in Christ? And what we see is it is a loving work of a Trinitarian God. As Christians, the Bible teaches us that God is a Trinity. One God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And all three of them are active in your salvation, in the riches that you have received from God. And so what we're going to see, and we're going to split it up between today and next week because there is so much here, we could spend weeks on it. But what we're going to do today is we're actually just going to look at the first point. But what we'll see throughout it is that the Father predestines love, that the Son, Jesus, achieves love, and the Holy Spirit seals love. The Father predestines love, the Son achieves love, and the Holy Spirit seals love. We're going to look just at the first point today. The Father predestines love. Now, this is a difficult topic. (laughs) If you have been around Christianity for more than a few years, you will know this is a topic that creates a lot of tension in people. And uh, as we dive into it, I would say this. In humility, I don't have it all figured out. But I think what's important is that we go to the Word of God and we see what it says and we rejoice in it. And so what it means that the Father has predestined us in love is that he has decided beforehand or he has predetermined that he would bless us with the riches of Jesus Christ. I realize that this term is probably new to some of you. Uh, To others, this thought of God predestining us is offensive to you. And as I started preparing the sermon, I thought to myself, what is maybe a softer word I could use, right? The Father elects us. The Father chooses us. The Father saves us. But I chose the word predestined because that's the word the Bible uses. (laughs) And if the Bible thinks it's okay to use that word, I suppose it might be okay for me to use it as well. So verse 4 says this. Even as he chose us in him, you have it right there, chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Those are some of the riches, which we'll talk more about next week. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. And so what Paul is saying in these verses is that God, before creation, has predestined that he would give riches to people, that he would bless them tremendously with all the riches in Christ. Verse 11 goes on. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined. You can see how people would maybe struggle with this thought of predestination, how it might be offensive for some folks. But for Paul... This thought of predestination is not offensive at all. As a matter of fact, it's the foundation for his joy. It's the foundation for the reason why in 
verse 3 through 14, he has this one long burst of celebration because God the Father has predestined us to salvation, to have the riches of his blessing. Why would this term be such great joy to Paul? Why would this term predestination possibly be great news to us? That's really the question we need to ask. This is really the thing that we need to understand. And as we ask the question, why is predestination such good news? I think the most helpful way to understand that answer is by looking at the major objection to this doctrine. The major objection, and maybe you've thought this in your heart, I've thought this in mine certainly many times, is that predestination just seems unjust. It seems unfair, doesn't it? It's okay to say, yeah, it seems unfair. It seems unfair. It seems unjust. Why would God not just give an equal chance to everyone? Why would he violate people's free will and choose to bless some and not choose to bless others? Why would he do that? Why would he take away our free will? But here's the linchpin to this. Is the reason why God had to predestine you is because you have free will. Let me say that again. The reason why God had to predestine you is because you have free will. You were born with free will. But all of us, every single one, with our free will, a thousand out of a thousand times, will reject God, will run away from God, will hate God, will be angry at God unless God intervenes into our life. Romans Chapter 3 explains this very well. And I'm going to read it twice because it's just so clear cut. And this is throughout Scripture. It just tells us over and over again that we have hated God and we have rebelled against God. And it's, it's brought to a focus here in Romans 3, 10 through 12. Notice how many times it, it, it over-exaggerates the fact that no one is beyond this. Okay? Verse 10. None is righteous. There's one. No, not one. Two. No one understands. Three. No one seeks for God. Four. Twelve. All have turned aside. Five. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Seven times he overemphasizes it. I don't think he could overemphasize it more. That nobody seeks God on their own. That God has to be at work in your life. Like Paul, by nature, in our free will, we all fight against God. We are all enemies of God. None of us see God. None of us are righteous on our own. In our free will, we have abandoned God. We have run away from God. But in the Father's free will, he has chosen to love a rebellious, wicked, sinful, evil, hateful people. And that has become his church. (laughs) See, because we have free will, because we could do whatever we wanted, we all chose to run away from God. God had to predestine that he would come and save us from that. And he delights in us and he loves us and he blesses us with every spiritual blessing. And so maybe we can now see why this 
thought of predestination is so joyous for Paul. Because in our free will, we have run away from God. But in his free will, he has chosen to love us and save us. There's a helpful uh, story help illustrate this. I'll just read it. It comes from the New York Times, January 11th, 2003. And it's based out of Chicago. Robin Hobley's long red fingernails were quivering, tears making rivers on her cheeks. This morning, as she held the advanced text of Governor George Ryan's speech on the death penalty, she had not quite believed the reports that her younger brother, Madison Hobley, would be pardoned by the governor and freed from death row. But as she awaited Mr. Ryan's arrival in a crowded classroom here at the DePaul University College of Law, it was right there in her hands, words on a page in black and white. Her son was pardoned from death row. She says, I read so many horrible transcripts over 16 years. I don't believe what I'm reading. Governor Ryan, thank you. Clutching her, her hands together, she says, I always felt Madison, her son, was coming home. I just felt it would be a long struggle. Mr. Hobley, who was convicted of killing his wife, infant child, and five others in 1987, arson, walked out of Pontan. Pontiac Correctional Center uh, says this afternoon, one of four death row inmates that Governor Ryan pardoned three days before the end of his term. Experts said it was the first time in memory that condemned men had been directly pardoned as opposed to being released through a court proceeding. An extraordinary step Governor Ryan took because he said he is convinced of their innocence. God has pardoned us, not because he's convinced of our innocence, but because he's convinced of our guilt. And he has chosen to love you despite your guilt. He has pardoned you from the penalty of sin, which is death. You see, if this doctrine of predestination offends you, as sometimes it offends me, the reason is, is because we don't have a biblical understanding of sin and what it does to us. We are not merely sick. We are dead in our sin. In Isaiah 64, 6, it says, all our righteous acts, the good things we do, are like filthy rags. And so to say that predestination is unjust, that it's not fair, could only be true in this standpoint. Predestination is unjust because God is, predestination is not unjust because God does not save everyone. Predestination might be unjust because God saves anyone. None of us deserve to be saved. Do you see how this radical understanding of sin, this radical understanding of the wages of sin, this understanding from Romans 3 that all of us have sinned, that none of us pursue God, that none of us love God, makes predestination seem unjust from the other side, that none of us deserve it? You see, there's this tension throughout the Scripture, and it's in the Old Testament, and it comes to light in the New, but God wants to love a people. He wants to care for a people. He wants to blow out, bless him and pour out his riches and his blessing upon them. But the tension is, is that they're sinners, that they're condemned to death and that God is a righteous and just 
and good God. And so here's this tension. I want to bless them. I want to love them. But they're sinners and they must die because that is the wages of sin. And so there is this tension throughout Scripture. And we wonder, how is this going to be reconciled? And it never makes sense until the cross of Jesus Christ where God takes our punishment and puts it on Jesus. God fulfills his justice so that he can pour out his righteousness and blessings and love upon us. This is the good news of the cross of Jesus Christ. At the cross, sinless Jesus absorbed the penalty of our sin that we could be pardoned from God. This is why it is such good news to Paul that God would exercise justice on the cross that he could show mercy to those whom he has chosen to show mercy. There are uh, four applications that I want to talk about in terms of this topic, um, election, predestination. They're kind of the same thing. Before we dive into them, I guess I'd like to just share with you that this is a tough subject. This is a hard subject. Because what we see is this tension throughout Scripture, another tension, that God is in complete control, but we are also responsible for everything we do. And if you ever find someone who can tell you how those reconcile, walk away, because the Bible never tells us how it works. There's this great quote, um, I believe it's from J.I. Packer. He was asked, how do you reconcile God's sovereignty and man's responsibility? How do you reconcile the fact that God is completely in charge and that we're responsible for what we do in He responds, I never reconcile friends. (laughs) Meaning that for us, they seem to oppose each other. But for God, it all makes logical sense. And so, anyways, as we look at this, it's true that God is sovereign, that he is in control of all things. And there's four applications here that I want to list out to you. And I stole these from Montgomery Boyce. So just so you know, I don't get the credit. I think these are really helpful. First off, Election, the same as predestination, eliminates boasting. I mean, think of this. If God has chosen you despite your condition, despite your sinfulness, and he has chosen to rescue you and to save you from death, there's no way we could ever boast. I mean, when Superman goes and he rescues Lois Lane, no one praises Lois Lane. It's Superman. He's the hero. God is the hero of our salvation. He is the beginning and the finisher of our salvation. And so he gets the glory. We have nothing to boast about. Christians should be the humblest people in the whole world as we understand the hell we merit, but the heaven we are bound for because of the riches of God poured out to us through Jesus Christ. Secondly, the second application is that Election leads to holiness. Now, some people might say, well, if God chooses who he's going to save, then I should just go do whatever I want. Just go sin like crazy. But there's a fundamental error in that. If you look here in, um, in verse 4, it says, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. You see what happened is that God has decided to declare you innocent, to declare you holy, to declare you as if you have never sinned. And so you have switched teams. You have become a new creation. And so it no longer makes sense for you to go back to an old lifestyle. All of us mess up. All of us sin. Don't get me wrong. But it makes no sense to go back to a life of slavery. 
It's kind of like in the NFL when a trader get when a player gets traded. So, for example, Donovan McNabb was traded from the Eagles to the Redskins, right? And they come together and they play, and it's this huge affair. And who's Dom, who, who's he going to fight for to win? The Redskins, because he's on a different team. And so you see what God has done in saving us is that he has transferred us from one team of darkness and slavery to a team of light and freedom. And so it encourages us to pursue holiness. Thirdly, election promotes evangelism. Again, you know, people would probably say, well, if God chooses some and not others, then why in the world would we ever tell anyone about Jesus? And here's the cool irony of this, is that Paul, the one who is glorying in this theological topic that God has chosen us, this truth that God has predestined us from the before the creation of the world, is also probably the best evangelist that ever lived. I mean, half the New Testament is written by him. He went on three missionary journeys. He was whipped. He was almost killed. He was killed promoting and proclaiming Jesus Christ as Savior. And so what was it that Paul saw that would lead him to proclaim the gospel more boldly? The fact that this is true. Well, for Paul, it was encouragement that the impossible could happen. Do you remember the time when Jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God? Do you remember that? What Jesus was saying is that it's not difficult. It's impossible. A camel cannot go through the eye of a needle. And then that verse goes on and he says, what is impossible with man is possible with God. You see, us sharing the love of Jesus with others, us hoping and praying that they would come to faith in Christ is a good and wonderful thing, but we cannot change their heart. That's something that only God can do. And so Paul went boldly, knowing that he could proclaim the gospel and that God had people in mind, people that he was working in and through to bring into his church. And so it encourages us to promote the gospel boldly. Finally, and this is probably the most wonderful of all the implications, is that election gives us assurance of our salvation. And this is very easy. If salvation is up to us, it's bad news. Think of last year's New Year's resolution. Think of this year's New Year's resolution. Think of the last time you decide, all right, I'm going to read the Bible every day. Think of the last time you said, all right, I'm going to start a diet. I'm going to start a workout plan. Think about it. I mean, do you really want it to be completely up to you? I don't. But God secures it like a heavenly father who loves his children. You know, Corbin and Caleb and Carissa are my kids. And number four is too. And that's the name for now, number four. I love those kids. There is nothing, nothing they can do that would ever keep me from stop loving them. And this is what Paul glories in. If your earthly father loves you like that, how much more does your heavenly father? And this is the hope that Paul has, and this is why he is so exploding with joy in these verses. 
Let me just conclude with this final question that I think all of us ask. How do I know if I'm predestined? (laughs) Right? How do I know if I'm predestined? How do I know if I'm one of the people that God has chosen to save? Well, let me give you the answer. I don't know. (laughs) Only God knows. But there is really good news. Look with me, if you would, in verse 10. It says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purposes of him. And so they're his purposes, not ours. We don't understand them. Not all of them. According to the purposes of him who works. What does he work? Here it is. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. Do you know what this means? It means the fact that you are here this morning is by no mistake. That before the foundation of the world, God had determined that you would wake up this morning, that you would be able to breathe another breath, that this morning you would get out of bed, that this morning you would get up and you would take a shower. Well, some of you would take a shower, right? And you would come here and you would be here in time to come and worship with us or hear this message, that you would come and hear the good news of Jesus Christ. None of this is by mistake. God is working in your heart. God is working in your life. And that's why you're here this morning. And so our response to that is to trust in the God who loves us unconditionally before the beginning of the world and to rejoice in him and to overflow in praise like Paul did. And so I would encourage you this week to delight And the fact that your heavenly father loves you, that he cherishes you, that he has poured out abundant blessing and riches upon you through Jesus Christ. Next week, we're going to see that these riches come to us through Christ and they are applied to us by the Holy Spirit for the praise and glory of God. I would encourage you this week to take those first 14 verses of Ephesians Read over them several times. Pray through them. Praise God with them. And come and be prepared to better understanding all the riches, all of them that you have in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, this is a, uh, a wonderful, glorious, and difficult thing to wrap our head around, Lord. That you have loved us before you even created the world. That Before you created the world, you have chosen to love a rebellious people, a people who, in our own free will, have chosen to run away from you. And yet, in your will, you have chosen to run towards us and to love us and to care for us and to pour out your grace upon us. We praise you for being so gracious to us, Lord God. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. As we come to the Lord's Supper, we're going to do something different today. We're going to actually do it different for the whole book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians is about the church, the church of Jesus Christ, redeemed, the church of Jesus Christ sent out. And one of the major emphasis in the book of Ephesians is the unity of the body of Christ, that we are all family. As a matter of fact, that we are all united together through our union with Jesus Christ. And we're going to study that more next week and in the following weeks to come, but we are united to one another. 
You can see this here when Paul is talking about the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11, 23. He says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is in the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And this is true. We do this. We proclaim the Lord's death when we take the Lord's Supper. But it goes on. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. And so if you are here today and you do not trust in Jesus Christ, whether you're a member of this church or another church, it doesn't matter. This this table belongs to Jesus Christ. But if you're here and you don't trust in Christ, we are so glad you're here. As a matter of fact, in my opinion, I think God brought you here. But this is not for you. Think about, ponder what it would mean to trust in Christ. Come talk to us and let us explain to you the riches that Christ offers to you. It goes on. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Very interesting. It says, whoever does not discern the body. It doesn't say the body and blood, but whoever does not discern the body. See, this passage is wrapped around by several chapters talking about the church and unity in the church and the church being a body. And so it seems to be pointing to the fact that you need to discern that you are part of a larger body, the body of Christ. If you have someone that you that has sinned against you or that you have sinned against and you have not restored that relationship, this table is not for you right now. You need to go and repent or ask for forgiveness from that person before you come and take. It goes on. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you were weak and ill and some have died. But if we judge ourselves, truly we would not be judged But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. And then here's where it brings it together with the unity of the church. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, talking about the Lord's Supper, wait for one another. And that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to distribute the elements. We're going to wait for one another and we're going to take together. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. So what we're going to do this morning is we're actually going to pass the trays around, okay? We're going to start by passing the, the bread around, and you can take it, pass it down, uh, but then hold on to it, and we will take it together, okay? Um, and then we will serve the wine and grape juice after that. So if the leaders would come forward. <clears throat> 